I want to take you on a trip overseas to see some magnificent works of art, two in particular. To view the first painting, we need to travel to Paris. Any takers? Now, it's just a virtual trip, so we are in a COVID-19 free zone. We come to the renowned Louvre Museum. We get our ticket and enter. We walk past paintings by some of the greatest artists who've ever lived. Rembrandt, Van Gogh, Monet. You climb the stairs and move from one cavernous room to another until you finally spot it. Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. The most famous painting in the world. Reported worth $700 million. The size of the painting surprises you. Based on legend and popularity, you may have pictured it to stand two stories high, but the dimensions are a mere 30 inches tall by 21 inches wide, the size of your standard oven door turned upright. There's a story behind this painting. Mona was born on June 15, 1479 during the Italian Renaissance. Her husband was a wealthy Florentine silk merchant who supposedly commissioned this painting for their new home to celebrate the birth of their second son, Andrea. If you haven't been there, you may not know that the painting hangs in a huge room all by itself, disconnected to the others in the museum. In other rooms, you will come across Supper at Emmaus by Rembrandt, Liberty Leading the People by Eugene Delacroix, The Virgin and Child with St. John the Baptist by Raphael, each one is completely different, having its own unique tale utterly unrelated to the Mona Lisa story. To view the second painting, we have to catch a short flight to Rome, grab a taxi, and use your best Italian to ask the driver to take you to the Vatican. Upon arriving, you walk across the magnificent plaza and enter the Sistine Chapel and look up to see the breathtaking work of Michelangelo, who painted his masterpiece in the same decade as da Vinci. You walk to the center of the chapel and look up, and there it is, the creation of Adam. The strong arm of God is reaching out to the limp hand of Adam. It has been reproduced on countless posters, prints, t-shirts, and postcards, and now you are standing just below the original. But here's the stark difference between the two paintings. Da Vinci's painting is of one person completely disconnected from the others, while Michelangelo's painting is a mural. The creation of Adam is interconnected to 341 other characters, and while each section of this massive mural depicts an individual story, they are all connected to tell a grand epic whose main theme is humanity's need for salvation offered by God through Jesus Christ. Every single story contributes to this narrative. God wants us to read the Bible as we would view a mural. Yes, there are individual stories that we can learn from, but he wants us to see how they are all being weaved together to tell the one grand love story to get us back. You know, there are two stories going on in the Bible at the same time, the lower story and the upper story. The lower story is our individual story and how we see life from our perspective. Then there is the upper story. The upper story is the story that God is writing. Each and every lower story is contributing to God's upper story. I had the privilege of writing a book called The Heart of the Story that walks you through the Bible in chronological order, showing you how each of the lower stories is contributing to God's upper story. I wanna show you just one example from the Bible, the story of Joseph. It begins in Genesis chapter 37. 
Joseph is 17 years old. He had 10 brothers who didn't like him very much for two reasons. One, he was dad's favorite. Dad, also called Jacob, even gave him a special coat, a coat of many colors. Second, he had these dreams where he believed that they were from God, where his brothers were bowing down to him. Here's a note to self. If you have such dreams, keep them to yourself. As a general rule, older siblings don't like to hear how they are going to bow down to you. Now, one day his dad sends him out to fetch his older brothers who are in the field tending to the sheep. The brothers see this as an opportunity to ditch their younger brother. So they rough him up and they sell him to a caravan of gypsies. The brothers dip Joseph's coat of many colors into animal's blood and go back to dad and tell him that Joseph was mauled by a beast. Kids, you thought you had problems with your brothers and sisters. How about this? In the lower story, this looks like a dysfunctional family with a bad case of sibling rivalry, and that's what it is. But something bigger is going on that we can't see yet. Joseph ends up being sold as a slave in Egypt to the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, a guy named Potiphar. There is a surprising sentence that just appears at this place in the story. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Even though God allowed his brothers to abuse him, he is now prospering him, and that is very significant. It has implications to God's involvement in our lives. With God's help, Joseph quickly rises and is put in charge of Potiphar's entire house. Then another twist, another bomb drops in Joseph's life. Genesis chapter 39 verse 6 tells us that Joseph was well-built and handsome, kind of like I'm going to be as soon as I start that new workout program. Potiphar's wife makes repeated advancements on Joseph, but he does the right thing and he refuses. Well, one day she tells her husband that Joseph made an advance on her and she resisted. Joseph is put in prison. He's up, he's down, he's up, and now he is down again. Genesis chapter 39 verses 20 and 21 tells us, While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. God again allowed for an unjust attack on Joseph and allowed him to go to prison in the lower story. Yet once in prison, Joseph immediately gains favor and is put in charge of the prison. One of the things that God did for Joseph was give him the ability to interpret dreams. Boy, would I like him to take a stab at some of the wacky dreams I've had. The story tells us that he's in prison for two years when he gets a call from Pharaoh, the main dude, to come interpret this dream he keeps having. Genesis chapter 41, beginning in verse 14, tells us, So Pharaoh sent for Joseph. He was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Now first, Joseph acknowledges God's personal involvement in his life. Then Joseph interprets the dream. Basically, he tells Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years of a bumper crop or lots of food, and then there's going to be followed by seven years of famine, no food at all. You know what? It's really helpful to know this. Genesis chapter 41 Verse 46 tells us that Pharaoh believes him and puts him second in command over all of Egypt to lead. He is now 30 years old. 
Seven years of harvest come and Joseph stores up food to get them through the seven years of famine. No other nation or people group knows what's coming. At the end of the first seven years, the seven years of famine begins. Under Joseph's leadership, they are prepared. Though the famine is affecting everyone everywhere, including his father and his 11 brothers. Jacob, Joseph's dad, sends the older brothers to Egypt to barter for some food so they don't die. They have no idea who they're going to run into. Now let me ask you, you're Joseph. What do you do when you see them? Joseph is now 39 years old when his brothers come and bow down before him, even though they don't know who he is. The dream of a 17-year-old boy is now fulfilled. 22 years has passed since he was sold down the river, thrown under the bus by his brothers. Now he has more power than you can ever imagine. Ooh, baby, what Jerry Springer wouldn't do to get a hold of a story like this. You can see it coming, can't you? No, you can't. What happens next is one of the tenderest and most incredible stories you will ever read anywhere. The brothers don't recognize him. One, they're not looking for him. And number two, Egyptian men wore a lot of makeup. After several encounters, Joseph finally reveals his identity. What does he do? He forgives them. Question, how did he do it? How could he find it within him, within his heart, to forgive them? Answer, Joseph captured the upper story. He captured God's bigger plan. We read about it in Genesis chapter 45. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all of Egypt. What Joseph's brothers did to him in the lower story was completely wrong and had lifetime consequences of pain and guilt and depression. But God used it to accomplish his overall purpose, his upper story plan. Here it is. God made a promise that he would provide the way for everyone, you and me included, to come back to him forever. Jesus is that solution. God also promised that Jesus would be born out of the nation of Israel, which he would start from scratch with Abraham. If Israel is snuffed out in this pandemic, then God didn't keep his promise. There is no Jesus and there is no salvation for us. Somewhere in this journey, Joseph captured this. Very few people ever do. This is what enabled Joseph to process all the junk of his brothers and forgive them. The book of Genesis ends with this report on Joseph. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all of his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Maker, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Joseph went on to live to be 110 years old. Yes, he had 22 rough years, but ended up with 73 more great years. 
Joseph got a glimpse of God's upper story and it enabled him to rise above the junk in his lower story. And in the end, God wrote a good story with the life of Joseph. Now, let me ask you, have you ever experienced what Joseph experienced? Have you ever been in a place where the lower story in your life looked one way, but in the end, you caught a glimpse of the upper story and it made sense of it and a good story emerged? I remember back in the late 1990s, 1999 to be exact, out of nowhere, we find out my mom has advanced pancreatic cancer. I prayed and pleaded with God to heal my mom, but three days later, at the age of 62, she died. From the lower story perspective, I was devastated. Why would God not answer my prayer? Why would he abandon me? What possible reason could God have for allowing this? My mom was a Christian. She confessed Jesus as her Savior, and I knew she was with God, but, but why now? Well, from the upper story, I can see, I can see at least one good reason. It was through the crisis of my mother's death that my dad trusted Jesus. Now, instead of just spending eternity with my mom, I now get to spend eternity with my dad as well. While I've missed my mom for these last 20 years and my dad now for these last six years, I have eternity to look forward to. When bad things happen, you may think that God has abandoned you. The cancer, the divorce, the betrayal, the loss of job, that's how it looks in the lower story. And in the midst of the coronavirus, you might be thinking, where is God? If you only look from the lower story, this may be your conclusion, but you are not taking into account God's bigger picture, God's upper story. Romans 8.28 offers us this promise. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Put another way, if you look up, and align your life to his upper story purposes, he promises to write a good story with your life. Anybody want your life to be a good story? Let's go back to the Sistine Chapel for just a few more minutes. You look up and off into the corner, you see a man with his back towards you. As you study the scene just a bit more, you realize the guy is painting something on the ceiling. To your amazement, it's Michelangelo. And as you walk closer, you realize he's painting a new scene and you are the main character in it. You know, God's story isn't finished yet. That means that you and I are characters in that story. Of the 343 characters already on the ceiling, some are protagonists in the story, that is, they're for God, and some are antagonists, they're against God. Let me ask you this question. Which role are you playing in God's story? If Michelangelo painted a scene of your life on the Sistine Chapel, what would it look like? What do you want it to look like? What do you need to do differently now to alter the brush strokes of the famous painter? Don't keep your head down and see life only from the lower story. Look up and get a glimpse of God's bigger story, the upper story. Find your story in God's story, and I promise you, no, God promises you it will end up being a good story. And all of God's people said, amen.